The sermon text today is Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Well, the, uh, the cancel culture has struck again. I was personally devastated when they took down Mr. Potato Head. I thought of all the people to go after Mr. Potato Head, and then Dr. Seuss and the cat in the hat. I thought, what is this world coming to? Many of you are thinking that way, actually, as we kind of progress through these days, we're wondering what what is happening? What, what, are, what are things coming to? You know, I, I quoted about two or three weeks ago that report from this um, a survey done on Americans' mental health, and I had shared that it's been a survey taken since 2001 all the way up to the present, and that last year it had fallen the most, nine points uh, of any other time that all the groups had fallen. And the reasons are obviously clear. Uh, there is cultural turmoil. There is political upheaval. There is a pandemic. There is economic uncertainty. It is interesting, the one group, out of all the groups surveyed, the one group that didn't fall in terms of mental health but increased was those who worship weekly. Not those who worship regularly, but those who worship weekly. And I think in part that leads us to understand this psalm. You know, what do we do with all the things that you're being bombarded with day after day? How do you respond to it? Some of you, I think, you tend to busy yourself with distractions. Others, I think, can read the news and all of a sudden catastrophize everything and make comparisons with regimes and countries that would be just creating anxiety and fear? What do we do? Well, the scriptures help us deal with these kind of cultural decaying times, and that is the psalm of lament. A lament is a type of psalm. A lament is, is a psalm that expresses grief and sorrow over the troubles that we find. A, a, a psalm is is a response to the chaos of the world, the injustice, the troubles, the things that are either systemic or they're just out of reach and you can't change them. Not just, not just corporately, though, but also personally. How do we handle all that's being thrown at us? And the Bible would say, study the, the laments. Lament is a vehicle for us to express to God our distress over life, it's, it's a way of calling upon God for mercy and deliverance. 
And then it's a time of trusting ourselves to God, making that active choice by faith. We're going to trust ourselves to the character of God, regardless of what's around us. We're going to trust ourselves. Really, the Psalms for us are kind of, it's our library of the pilgrimage. We're making a journey. And the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of Lament, help us move from, from sorrow to joy and from fear to trust. I used to have a teacher, a professor, uh, that would say, we're in the school of faith. It's an exercise of faith. How do we walk through this life by faith? And that's what we're going to see here. So wh whatever is kind of assailing you right now, I, I want you to consider joining with me in walking out a psalm of, a, a psalm of lament. So we're looking at it in three parts. First, there's the cry of distress. There's a cry of distress. You hear David call out to God, and you're going to see that in verses 1 to 4, that we're going to have this, this call for deliverance. He's going to call upon God to deliver in 6 and 7, and then he's going to commit his way to trust God regardless of the circumstances, and you're going to see those sprinkled throughout the sermon, or sprinkled throughout the text in 3, 5, and 7. So let's first look at this cry of distress. Look with me at 1 and 2. He says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So you, you hear David. David is just speaking what he's struggling. He's desperate. He's alone. He's forlorn. You hear it in his language. Now I want to point out something that you might miss if you just read quickly over it. And that is that he's using the first person. I plead. In other words, he's not actually pleading right now. He's telling the congregation before him how he pled, how he was desperate. In other words, if you notice in the superscription, those small little words between the number 142 and the text of Scripture, it says a mascal. A mascal, roughly translated, means instruction. David is giving instruction through this psalm on how we are to lament. So this is a great text for us on learning how we are called to lament. And so he's explaining what he did. He was transparent. I pled with the Lord. I was desperate. I called out to him. I poured out my troubles to him. I gave him everything I had. There, there is no bravado here. There's not, I'm going to clean it up. I want to make sure that I look kind of good when I repent to God. He just dumped it all before God. It's a way that we're called to cry out in distress. Not to try to keep finding the silver lining and everything, or how it's all going to turn out good in the end. Not at this point. In a lament, we dump our heart and our hurts to God. Now, what's the situation here that he's in? Well, again, in the superscription, you see uh, that it says, while he was in the cave. We don't know exactly what cave it was. It could have been Abdullam Cave, as you see in 1 Samuel 22. It could have been Engedi, another cave. Uh, what, he was ha what was happening to David was he was being pursued uh, by King Saul. Uh, so the king of Israel is trying to kill David. Uh, David is a threat to his reign. David is anointed of God, he's blessed of God, and he's a threat to him. So he's trying to kill him. He's hunting, he's driving him into the wilderness. David is going through the wilderness, the barren, forsaken land. These caves that he was hiding in on a trip to Israel, I went out to at least the cave they understand to be in the area where En Gedi was. I mean, it is, it is a forsaken land. 
These mountains just go sheer down to the Dead Sea. And you see him spotted up there. He was in there hiding. He had no one. He was forsaken. He was alone. He was absolutely distressed, calling out to God, crying out to God. Now, this wasn't some shriek of fear, like he's just scared, and he's like when you get surprised and you shout. He, he explains to God what his troubles are. He pours it out. Look with me at 3 and 4. In 3 and 4, he says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the paths where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. So he's telling God. His spirit is fainting. He has no resources left. He can't dig down a little deeper. He's absolutely without hope. They've, they've set those snares. You know, the, the crack of a stick or the crunch of a leaf would, would frighten him. He's alone. Absolutely. He says, look to my right and see. To the right is where your legal counsel would stand defending you. Or to the right would be where your armor bearer stands to protect you. He has no one to the right. Look and see. No one takes notice of me. No one knows the injustices he's facing. No one knows the trials he's enduring. There's no one being empathetic with him. There's no one lending an open e and uh, kind of lending an ear to his troubles. He says, there's no refuge for me. There's no place to go. There's no retreat. There's no keep to fall back to. He's absolutely without a place. He's unprotected. He's vulnerable. He says, no one takes care of my soul. Think about that. He has no friend. He has no spiritual confidant. He has no one that is intimately acquainted with him. He is alone. He's alone. That's a terrible place to be. I mean, when you're in the wilderness, it's disorienting. It's just disorienting. And remember David now. David had already slayed Goliath. He was already a national hero. He had already ate at the king's table. He had married the king's daughter. And now his life is upside down. I mean, his life is, that's what happens when crises hits you. You don't process it logically. I mean, it hits you and you're, I mean, it's like when you're a kid, you know, and you, you spun around and around and around and around and around and you stop spinning. You didn't stop spinning. Right was left, up was down. I mean, you didn't know what end was. That's what happens when crises hits you. And when you get the call, you know, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Or, yeah, you have inoperable cancer. Or, the job, it's, it's terminated. It'll be over in two weeks. I mean, you, you get those calls, you hear those news. It's life in the wilderness. What do you do when these trials come into your life? You know, because life is a wilderness. I, I mean, life is filled with difficulty. The world that we have is not as it should be, and it is not as it will be. It, we're not in Eden, and we're not in Eden remade. We are in the wilderness. Uh, the wilderness is marked by unfulfilled dreams, Unfaithful friends, troubled marriages, angry children. And, and it all kind of ends in that black hole of death. We live in the wilderness. So where do you turn? I mean, what do you do with your fears over the future, over the lives that your children will live, or your grandchildren, 
What do you do when you're being governed by institutions that you don't trust? What do you do with the angry rhetoric of today? You know, many of you will busy yourselves. You'll, you'll stay active, you'll do what's right in front of your nose, and you'll busy yourself trying not to look ahead. Others will bury themselves. They'll bury themselves in food or alcohol or Netflix or fantasy flicks. Others will catastrophize, and they'll run right to the worst scenario, even though God may never have that for you. And this is too often in the Christian community. And we catastrophize everything. Others will turn to the very institutions. They're bigger, or technology, or I'm, I'm hoping for a medical breakthrough. And we put our hope in those that we respect or those that are above us. And some of you, some of you may just complain and you moan. You won't complain to God, but you'll complain. And for some, the harshness of the wilderness will actually lead you to hold God in contempt and be angry at him. Others, you, you, you'll turn away from faith. You'll just ignore him. If this is the kind of world he creates, I don't want any part of him. Those are all responses that are designed to destroy you. They won't help you. They won't save you. The lament is when we find ourselves in the wilderness that we turn to God. We appeal to him. This is a transparent prayer. It's an honest prayer. Don't look at lament as venting against God or about God. There's a reverence here. There's a submission here. There's a, a recognition that David is a creature and God is the creator. But there is a pouring out, just appealing to God. That's what I'm asking you to do. That when you hit these crises, that you just appeal to him. You pour out your complaints to him. And that word complaint doesn't mean you get to bellyache under the, kind of under the guise of, well, I'm just trying to be authentic. No, no, it, it's literally complaining about the impact of sin and my own sin on this world. And let me warn you, don't fail to do this. To think you're going to hold it all in and you're just going to bottle it up and tighten the bolts down more, it, it'll, it'll eat you for lunch. You know, Spurgeon, in his sermon on Psalm 142, he says, Unuttered grief will lie and smolder in the soul till its black smoke puts out the very eyes of the Spirit. No, we have to, we have to speak to God. He goes on and says, Caves have heard the best prayers. The best prayers. I think about uh, the the slaves in our country. This, was, this came from the account of a woman named Mary Livermore. She was a Boston school teacher. This is prior to the Civil War. She was traveling through Virginia. And in her diary she writes, As we wheeled up the avenue, our numbers are increasing. The Negroes broke into another song, more joyful than the last, and all clapped their hands in unison when they sang the chorus until the air quivered with melody. Were they singing? They were singing, Oh, by and by, by and by, I'm going to lay down my heavy load. I'm troubled. I'm troubled. I'm troubled in mind. If Jesus don't help me, I'll surely die. They poured themselves out to God. I think about uh, my brother. Many of you know that he died when he was 41. 
after all the <coughs> debate of whether to share this or not, but after all the treatments and all the cancer and all the stuff, and they finally said there's nothing. And he said it was when he thought it was just me and Jesus. He said, that's all I've got. It was a cry of desperation. No one, who, who do you turn to? Community can't help. I had told him, I can only walk you to the edge of the river. I can't take you any further. It's just a cry of desperation. That's what he's calling for us to do. That sense of loneliness. I've got no one. And yet you do have. You do have someone. That's what he does next. He calls upon God. This is what we're to do. This is instruction for us. This isn't just information about Psalm 142. This is instruction that when we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, which we're all transversing through, that we would then call to God. Look with me at 6 and 7. He says, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. Here, David is not bashful. He asks God for things. Notice he says, attend to my cry. He assumes that God is listening to him. He's calling for God to attend. He's brought low. He's not delivered from it. He's in the middle of it. But he appeals to God as if he believes God is hearing. He's not doubting that God cares for him. He hasn't been delivered. God's presence is with us in the storm, not just after the storm. So he says, attend to my cry. And then he says, deliver me from my persecutors. He is asking for deliverance. He's asking for help. Uh, he's being hunted down like prey. He says, they're too strong for me. And then he says, bring me out of prison. Prison is most likely a metaphor for the cave that he was trapped in. He says, bring me out so I can give thanks to your name. So you see him appeal to God specifically. And David has 20-20 vision that he cannot do it. So his appeal to God is as if he were absolutely alone. You know, when we make our appeal to God, when we ask for deliverance from God, it comes from a posture of humility. David said, no one takes notice of me. There is no refuge. No one cares for my soul. They're all too strong for me. He, he knows his inability. He knows his insufficiency. It's, it's inability and humility that is this fertile soil for these prayers that we bring to God. I, I, I'm not opposed, and I don't, I don't deny the value, the temporal value that, that the medical advancements or you know, other technological aids that we have that can help us, I don't deny that. They just don't solve the problem of the wilderness. They, they, won't, they don't have it in them. As you study history, generation after generation after generation, we're dealing with the same wilderness. It hasn't been rectified. So there has to be that humility that I'm looking to God and God alone. The means of grace that may come through various people that may temporarily help us, but it won't fix the problem. And you notice, too, that the cry of deliverance is without presumption. I mean, he's not saying you've got to do it this way, God. 
and then I'm going to see your goodness if you do this. He doesn't root God's goodness in his deliverance. He just appeals to God. He doesn't, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends in Daniel. You know, when they were told to worship the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built, or else they would die, and he goes, we're not going to do it. He said, no, we know that our God can save us, but if he doesn't, we're not going to worship it anyways. So there's that, there's that trust in God, but there's not the presumption that it has to be this way for God to be good. But what I want you to see also in this is that when he calls out to God for deliverance, you see, particularly in verse 7, that he's looking for something more than just deliverance from Saul. The current problem with Saul is a temporal problem. It may be a life-threatening issue, but it's still temporal. He sees the problems that he faces as being indicative of a greater problem, which is the wilderness. He knows that even if he is delivered from Saul, he still has the problem of what? Didn't this happen to Lazarus? I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Praise the Lord, that's fantastic, isn't it? He still died. He's still in the wilderness. The miracles don't deliver you from the wilderness. What a lament reminds us is the troubles that we have are to remind us that we need something greater than a temporal help. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. We need someone to come and fix the place. We need something more colossal, something more fundamental to change. This is the glory of Easter. Easter is kind of a foretaste of that deliverance. You know, you have an Easter, you have the Son of Man, the Son of God coming and bearing our sins to reconcile us to God. But then you see him die, bearing the judgment of God. And then you see him raised. Now death, the black hole of the wilderness, death has been defeated. A new order has been established. That's the point of the miracles. The miracles weren't simply to make life better for those few people that had them in the ministry of Christ. They were little snapshots of the kingdom that he's bringing. They were pictures of what is to come. See, in a lament, as we're looking at the struggle of our own life, we're to remind ourselves this is just this is a symptom of a greater problem that we need to seek God for. It's a longing for full deliverance. That's why we're doing these psalms leading up to Easter. A lament reminds us of why we need Easter, why we need Jesus to bring about a new order, a new world, a new kingdom that's just and righteous. We're going to look at a psalm of confession, a penitential psalm, because in this wilderness we're still sinning and we need to, be, we need to confess those before God. And then we'll look at a psalm of trust, the trust that we're to have, the trust that Simeon or Anna had when they waited for the Messiah, the consolation of Israel to be born. So a lament reminds us not just to lament our problems, but to recognize that we have a greater problem. There should be a longing in our hearts over lament. A longing. A longing for something more. It's really, I think, part of every one of our souls. We long for something more, don't we? Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, there's, there's a longing. There's a longing for it. C.S. Lewis writes in The Problem of Pain, he says, the longing for heaven is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable, the unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work. 
and which we still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife, friend, or work. There's a longing that every one of us has for something better. And God has put that there, that we would long for him. So in this lament, there is the cry of distress. And, and let me remind you of one thing on this cry of distress. You know, when you, when you hear David cry, don't you hear echoes of his cry when Jesus cried? When Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he's hanging on the cross, don't you hear the same kind of language? David is a, is a type of Christ. His cries of distress were heard in the very voice of, of Christ when he was hanging on the cross. But here's the key difference. David was only forsaken by man. Jesus Christ was forsaken by God and man. But by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one whom God said, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, is now forsaken by the same God. Jesus, bearing our sins and our shame and our guilt, he bore those things, he bore the forsakenness of God that we might never be forsaken by God. So when you and I cry in distress, he will hear us and respond to us. And when you call to him for deliverance, he will meet you and strengthen you and encourage you and call out to him alone. So you see in this lament, we move from a cry of distress, we move to a call for deliverance. But then notice what happens next. He commits his way. He commits his way. Now, I, I want you to see this kind of woven throughout the psalm. He commits his way. He, he looks to God, the character of God, and, and he roots his trust not in the changing circumstances that may be happening in his life, but he roots his trust in the character of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the past acts of God. You see it in verse 3. Look first with me. There's three summits of trust, if you will. In verse 3, he says, When my soul faints within me, you know my way. In other words, when David laments, he commits his way to God because God knows his way. God's intimate in the details of the troubles and trials he's facing. God's not unaware. He's not distant. He's not uninvolved. He knows every detail, and he's sovereign over those. How else could you go through a trial if God wasn't sovereignly, sovereignly managing it? If, if it was under some kind of random order or some nefarious God? But David rests, knowing that God knows his way. The same author wrote Psalm 139. O Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. He says, such knowledge... To know how well you know me is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't grasp it. I can't get it. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I 
Take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. You feel him say, even in the midst of the worst travail, he is all over me and knows me. This is, this is if you don't understand that, it's hard to commit your way to him. But if you know how intimate he is with your ways, even your suffering. You know, in Psalm 56, the psalmist says, you store my tears in a bottle. He knows every hurt, every suffering, every trouble, every trial. He knows your way. He's doing something with it. You need to know that he knows. But then look at the second pinnacle of trust in verse 5. He says, I cry to you, O oh Lord, I say, you're my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So here, after he says, no one takes notice of me, there is no refuge, no one cares for my soul, but you're my refuge, you're my portion, so you're my refuge. Notice the possessive nature of that, my refuge. You're my fortress, you're my unassailable fortress, you're the rock upon which I stand, you are a place of safety for me. You are a place of protection. He's looking to God. And when he says, you are my portion, what does that mean, portion? Well, a lot of, it's really often used, that word with inheritances. Like, you know, this is your portion of the inheritance. This is all that you're getting. And he's saying, you're my portion. You're what I want for my inheritance. You're all I want. Does he want physical deliverance? I'm sure he does, but that's not where he's rooting his hope. You're my portion. If I have God, I have a refuge. And if I have a refuge, I'm fine. It's a commitment to trust. It's a commitment to say, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth, I desire nothing. You are my hope and my portion for life. This is, he's entrusting himself to God. This is what we do. But then the third pinnacle of trust, you see, is in verse 7, when he says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now you see the future tense there. He's speaking for how God will deliver him. He hasn't been yet delivered. He was entrusting himself, saying that I will give thanks to your name. It's a commitment to trust. Regardless of what this deliverance might look like, I know you'll deal bountifully with me. I know that at the end of my life, I will not say, you failed me, you did be work for me. It's this absolute trust. And I want you to notice the way he, he kind of weaved the trust in. It, it wasn't like, you know, when, when these psalms of lament, they're written after the event. But the psalmist is thinking back and going through how he cried out to God, and how he called to God for deliverance, and how God delivered him. And then he penned it. That's the kind of the cycle that we go through in laments. We cry out to God. We call upon him. We commit our way to him. And then we may cry out to him again, just as he does. He cries out in one and two. He cries out in four. He cries out in six. And then he goes back and he commits. He's building up the muscles of faith. We see the same thing in Psalm 50, 15. In the day of trouble, you will call upon me, I'll deliver you, and you will glorify my name. He's, he's taking a people in the school of faith, and he's teaching us. You know, when Anna Caroline, my granddaughter, 
uh, was diagnosed and walking through leukemia, every day I would go through the Psalms. And I would just do this. Yeah, it, it wasn't rocket science for me. I, I would read it. I would plead. I, I would cry out. I, I would call upon him for deliverance and safety and life. And, and then I would commit my way to him. didn't always feel the subjective experience wasn't these loving divine arms around me. It was a simple commitment. I will trust your way. You have, not, you have forsaken the Son to not forsake me. I will trust you. Do I like anything about the situation? Not anything. And so year after year, the two years, just one psalm a day. It's like a vitamin pill, just giving me strength. I'm going to commit my way to you. I want to ask you to join with me. I find this is where most or many Christians fail. They can cry out and they can call out. But when it comes to saying, I'm going to trust my way to God because of who he is, not where I am, but who he is, this is where we often go off rail. The way that we commit, how do we do this? Well, we have to contemplate God. That's what David did. He says, you know my way. You're my refuge. You're my portion. You will deal bountifully with me. You see him speak to the character of God repeatedly, reminding ourselves of these truths, filling our souls with the goodness of God. So we commit our way to him. And then we look at our trials, but we go beyond that, people. The troubles that you'll face, even death itself, is actually temporal. There are bigger things than this life, and it is being right with God. And so allow, allow whatever the trial is to remind you of the wilderness and of the need that we have and the longing that we ought to have for Christ to make all things right. How do we commit our way? By longing for Christ to make all things right. And then last, we do this together as a community. We gather together. You see there in verse 7, and the congregation will surround me. They'll surround me. I will declare his praises among the people. That's what we're called to do. You can't get through this wilderness alone. That's why we have a covenant in this church, so that we labor together with each other. We will all, we're all walking through the wilderness and we'll all have those dark periods in the wilderness. We need each other. You know, even with COVID, this has been a difficult time. Close to a third of our church has been unable to attend for various reasons. I'm sympathetic to some of the fears uh, that, that people have over this. But I do have to say, we have to gather together again. We've got to start coming back. Now, I know you're looking at me, and you're like, I'm gathering with you, and I'm thanking you. There's a lot of people that aren't here, and you and I, we need to encourage them. We're all still going to the stores. We're all still carrying on life. We need one another to go through those. We don't want to say, no one took notice of me. No one cared for my soul because we weren't with one another. God has so designed this pilgrimage to be a journey that we take as a community of faith. And so part of committing our way and committing our trust to God is we have to, I need your encouragement. So many of you encourage me. Others of you who have suffered well, you have received the encouragement of others and been blessed by it. We need one another. So here we have this psalm of of lament, it's a crying out in distress, it's followed by a call of deliverance, and then 
a commitment to trust him in the middle of the trial. And we'll do this over and over as he builds up our muscles of faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer, had this to say about laments. He says, where do you find deeper, more sorrowful or pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of Lament? There again, you look into the hearts of the saints as into death, yes, as into hell itself. When they speak of fear and of hope, they use such words that no painter could depict, no order could portray. And that they speak these words to God and with God, this I repeat, is the best thing of all. This gives the words double earnestness and life. This is a gift of God to us, to develop us into the people of God. Let's avail ourselves. As we approach Easter, as we long for Easter, which is a foretaste of what we'll have, let's long for him. Let's long for him. Let's commit our way to him. Let's cry out in distress and call out for deliverance. But at the end of the day, we wrap our anchor around Christ. He was the forsaken one so that we'll never be forsaken. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your son. Thank you, Lord, that you have not abandoned us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Father, I pray that, that we could cast all of our burdens upon you. You do care for us, and we, we confess that we love to carry them. God, grant us the grace that we might be a people, that collectively, uh, that, we would, that we would cry out, and that we would call out but that we would make that turn and commit our way to you. Even if we were facing death itself, that we would say, but you are our refuge. You are our portion. And you will deal bountifully with me. And I will give thanks for you to all those assembled in the name of God. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, let me orient you to um, communion. I've read a blog that moved my mind toward this direction. The blog was only entitled No Forgiveness. And the writer asks, can you imagine a world without forgiveness? And can you imagine the fear and the anger that would be a part of your relationships? Can you imagine the superficial relationships that you'd have because you couldn't go deep because you might just get in conflict? Can you imagine the bitterness and the rancor that you would feel towards one another? Holding grudges, no lasting friendship. Just imagine a world in which there is no forgiveness. And then, and then try to imagine no forgiveness with God. Your sins are piling up like that national debt meter that just spins at a rate that is dizzying. Can you imagine? No forgiveness. Well, the celebration of the Lord's table is given to the church to embolden, to give you a joy-filled faith for lives that still regularly sin. The table declares that all those that have faith in Christ come to the table forgiven. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In Him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So this, this table that we celebrate, communion that we celebrate, is 
We're celebrating a redemption that is rooted in the riches of his grace, wisdom, and insight. This forgiveness, I want you to see, the forgiveness that's proclaimed to the Christian is a legitimate and legal act of God that he has given to us because of the work of a son. We've been forgiven, justified, adopted. Think about the woman that came to Jesus, the prostitute weeping at his feet. What did he say to her? Your sins are forgiven. He said that to her. He declared it. it was a le- Your sins are forgiven. You're justified. You're innocent. And how could he say that? Because he, he was going to achieve it. Jesus Christ achieved a full and right forgiveness. Th- this isn't metaphorical. This is, no, you've been forgiven. I'd propose to you that while it may be hard to imagine a world without forgiveness, it's hard to imagine a world with forgiveness, that he would forgive us for all of our debts. I think it's harder to imagine. Now, please don't measure, don't measure this idea of forgiveness. The, don't measure the objective reality of God saying you're forgiven because of the Son. Don't measure that based upon your subjective experience. You may or may not always feel so forgiven. But the forgiveness is rooted in His riches that He lavished on us. And it was due to his wisdom and insight. He did it for us. We may not always, just as your children may not always feel loved by you, and yet they are still loved. So we stand forgiven. So as you consider the bread and the cup, I want you to consume them rejoicing over God's forgiveness that has come to you by faith but achieved in the Son. Your faith is a means by which you receive it. It doesn't achieve it or make it real. Christ and his blood shed is what makes forgiveness an objective reality that we can rest in till we stop breathing. So let's take a moment and quietly confess why we need this forgiveness and then rejoice over its availability through Christ by faith. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.